literally the name of the game is. I don't know. Should we do that? Yeah, why not? Well, that's weird. Taste yeah, this. The best. I mean, that is our job. It's amazing. The best sensation is when someone tastes it, thinking it's gonna be bad, and then they go like, "Oh wow, this is cool." Oh, I didn't realize it was gonna be like this. Like, yeah. That's the whole point. Everything for us has to be on some level sessionable. Like you gotta be able to just enjoy it with people, enjoy it with a meal, enjoy it. It's not meant to be esoteric. It's not meant to be challenging. Can you hang out with your buds and share a bottle of wine? If that's if that's what you're trying to do, we make wine for you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I would love to see a room full of psalms taste through our wines just for the jokes, you know? Dude, and I'd love to have the room of the average Joe wine drinkers on the other side. <laughs> yeah. Like, open the doors and can, like, go at it. And then that said, I have an amazing photograph. I wish I could share it in, in auditory terms. My dad taking his first sip of natural wine. And the look on his face is like, my son has chosen a very weird path. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Prefix Podcast, a podcast where the new voices in the food and beverage world share their stories and journeys in their own words. The show is produced and edited by me, Jordan Harrow, in Los Angeles, California. As John Keats once said, give me books, French wine, fruit, fine weather, and a little music played out of doors by somebody I do not know. No disrespect to the English poet, his love of books, or French wine, but winemakers Isamu Kamidi and Andrew Lardy of Wonderwork House of Fermentation might update that quote to instead say, give me natural wine from fruit, ingredients sourced from all across California and Mexico, a lot of disco music, and a dance floor to dance to that disco music with a lot of kindred raver spirits. I first met Andrew and Isamu randomly on a sidewalk in Hollywood. They kindly gifted me a bottle of their Free Your Mind natural red wine, which I consumed almost entirely by myself the next night while crisis managing a DIY pizza stone disaster inside my backyard Weber grill. But we don't need to go into that. Born out of one long night on a dance floor, the lineup of supernatural wines under the Wonderwork banner look and feel like an album cover from your all-time favorite band. Their bombastic labels are capable of seamlessly code-switching between a Chelsea Gallery opening and a 4 a.m. Bushwick Warehouse rave. But best of all, their wine tastes really good. Every vintage hits that Venn diagram holy intersection where complexity and drinkability merge together to dance across your palate and invite you to come with. The rising tide of new blood entering the marketplace is bringing an egalitarianism to what has been a relatively exclusive wine industry culture. This iconic classic duo, who call themselves the Pet Shop Boys of Wine, dare us to throw out the old, embrace the new, and dance yourself clean while doing it. We met up in their home base of East LA to talk a little bit about their story. Let's listen in. We're from the same area in Virginia, and we went to um, middle school together and then high school. Andy is, was a, a year below me. His year was really boring. My year was really fun, I think. The, pe- the people. The people. Right. We were up to no good. Yeah. And then we absorbed him into our friend group, and we, we were always into food. We would, in high school, we would do Iron Chef battles. Like, we would just pick a random ingredient seeker ingredient in the grocery store and then go do that i think the drink part 
came naturally afterwards and we got really into whiskey for a while and, and beer and um then i guess when you start working get a little bit of money you start talking about wine so at least back then and then then when i moved out here and i would go up to the central coast and visit andy working at different wineries and you know he was so into showing it off and, and proud of his work and stuff because you know he pivoted hardcore uh after grad school from neuropsychology mm -hmm. to winemaking so i think one of the greatest things about uh, the winemaking industry is when you first start working in a wine cellar there's just immediately an immense sense of pride that you can't help but soak up and i think it's easy for for budding cellar rats to you know that the conversation is often well he really makes the wines yeah you know the, that guy's the winemaker but i really make the wines here i'm the cellar rat and rats make all the wine um, <laughs> and uh you know yes it's true you are you know physically moving the juice from this container to that container of course you learn later in the game like look there's some really you know uh, higher level thinking going on too it's not just it, it's a it's a collaboration okay let's leave it at that but I mean, when Isami would come up and visit, I'd be climbing barrels, just like a fanatic, like, hey, taste this one. Hey, catch, what are you throwing? Is that wine coming out of a hose? What? I can't catch that. And it's uh, it's super fun. I mean, there's nothing better than tasting through barrels and concrete eggs and cool tanks with your friends who are like, yeah, I'm interested in wine. Can you tell me more? I'd be like, dude, just follow me. Yeah, and and it's awesome. I mean, there's such a plethora of a fruit and styles and wineries that I was working for. I think we really tasted a lot of stuff and figured out exactly what we didn't want to make. And when I first moved to LA, I lived down the street from Silver Lake Wine. So when he would come down, this is that was really when, when my when my ex girlfriend who I moved to LA with, when she was out of town or busy, I would call up Andy and say, "Come on down to LA, let's go raving, <laughs> let's go party." <laughs> and so that always uh, led us to. The wine tasting at Silver Lake Wine, and we first saw, I think it, maybe our first wine tasting that we went to, one of those Thursday or Monday night ones. Randy jumped up on the oh, yeah. counter and started talking about doing acid and drinking wine, yeah. and Andy was like, "What is this?" Because he's you know, that was mind blowing, and, you know. And we then it was natural wine, and we were tasting through stuff, and we we're like, you know, that was kind of one of the more eye opening moments when we started being like, "Oh, we could do this too," you know. Yeah, I had to leave work early to get to that tasting, and I'm leaving the the cellar environ of people considering. Do you think we should play classical music to the barrels at night because it might do this? And then I go down to LA, and there's this. Uh, Randy's a totally cool guy, but there's this crazed maniac standing on the table, you know, freestyling about mushrooms and wine and you know the joys of life. And I'm like, all right, so there are different there are different levels to this wine thing. Yeah. And I think I like the LA side better. It's different. It's interesting. Get me out of here. He saw me. And then we just went full bore into it. And, uh, uh, now we, now it's just interesting to see how things have changed so much. We had, a, we always have a lot of ideas. We always are making things or coming up with things and this one was he had a skill set being an excellent winemaker uh didn't want to really continue working for the people that he was working for and so we said let's just do our own thing um the real impetus for wonder work came out of our first wine which was disco vino donna rosé and that was born on the dance floor 100 percent uh 
we, I think it's weird to say Coachella to 2016. <laughs> Don't say Coachella. I know. Say something else. <laughs> it just <laughs> happened to be at Coachella. We were really not stoked. We were really not stoked on going to Coachella, but we figured, okay, we're actually uh, pretending to be uh, chefs and winemakers. I mean, half of it's true. Um, so we stayed at the Spotify mansion with all the Spotify people as their hired chef friend. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> and, uh, I th- yeah. and that was reason enough. And we knew that this uh, disco disco sound system, Dispacio by James Murphy from LCD Sound System, and the Soul Wax Brothers from Belgium, we knew that this was going to be at uh, Coachella that year. So okay, perhaps it's going to be an okay Coachella. Uh, those are rare, few and far between. So we agreed to go, and that's really where the the seed for Disco Vino, what then became Wonderwork, uh, was planted. Yeah, we. We had heard about Despacio, and it had only debuted in the UK at that point, but we had seen pictures. It was a custom-built sound system, um, you know, seven stacks of Macintosh amplifiers, and uh, it was basically the idea for the Soul Wax Brothers and James Murphy was to remove the DJ from the equation and recreate you know, the high quality, hi-fi sound systems of the past um, and put all the focus on the music. So basically a circular dance floor with a big disco ball in the middle and everybody's facing each other rather than looking at the head in front of you, the back of the head in front of you and watching a DJ. Like it's silly, it sounds very simple, but it's a massive, massive paradigm shift of what a dance floor is. Right, and so for us, we were like, we want to go to that. We went, and it was incredible. Completely blew our minds. Probably spent eight or nine hours inside that tent. Uh, a day we, times three. Yeah, times three. And then when we left, we were like, whoa, how do we put that into something? How do we take that energy? How do we uh, capture that sensation? We had already been talking about starting wine or doing something with wine. And I think it was sort of shortly after that that the the phrase disco vino came out into our heads. And I don't I don't even think it was that hard. We just said Donna Rose. Yeah, no, they, they came straight away. And I think we were chuckling at the time. Like, can we really call our first wine disco vino? Don't we have to make something like more serious first? Yeah, no, we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> you totally don't have to make something more serious. We went on to make wines called Bust and Loose and Toot Toot Beep Beep. Yeah. Like you don't have to be uh, serious at but, all. Yeah. So that was really the birth of it all. And um, yeah, well, we cut our teeth raving back in the day. So <laughs> that really hasn't left uh, our bloodstream that much. It's a similar schedule. But the, at some point, we started out with a third partner. He left. Uh, somewhere in the middle of that, we were we had this similar idea of, oh, we need to be taken seriously. Because we would go around pitching Disco Vino to a couple of accounts in LA and would get laughed out the out the place pretty much. One uh, Kana, Laugh, laughter would have been kinder. Yeah, Kana Wines told us that um, our, our description of our wines sounded like we were on an ayahuasca trip, which is and, exactly what I was going for. So I yeah. take that as a hundred. And points. they refused to taste the wine, so we were then we were oh, like, oh, right. I okay. forgot they refused to taste it. How yeah. lovely! So then we we're like, <laughs> okay, we have to be more serious. And um, at the time, this is like 2018. Now everything's disco. Now disco's cool. And yeah, all there's this stuff, three other know. people using the word disco in their wine right. right now. And you can see a lot of disco wine, theme wines and stuff. So 
Uh, we transitioned from Discovino into Wonderwork, which is now somewhat more of like an umbrella company. But Wonderwork is the name of a cave in South Africa that has uh, the earliest signs of, of human cooking, like in a million-year-old hearth, uh, which for us was cool because it's, you know, manipulating nature for consumption, uh, for enjoyment, you know, not just for, for consumption. So that's what we do. That's what fermentation is for us. Uh, so that really fit into it and, you know, became a little bit more of a Wonderwork House of Fermentation, this sort of fantasy Willy Wonka-esque idea in our mind for how we'll go about creating not just wine, but in the future, other fermented beverages. A big thing in, in natural wine is low intervention. And I'd say we go from like low intervention to like high innovation or high nice. interception. I don't know. We, inception. We, yeah, inception. Um, we just we like to play with stuff. We don't like to say that we're one hundred percent hands off. You know. Yeah. No, we're totally not. Again, it doesn't mean that we're putting nasty stuff in the wine. We're certainly not doing that. That's not where we choose to intervene. We choose to intervene when we come up with a weird idea that just makes sense. Like, hey, Piquet <clears throat> kind of sucks. Kind of needs acidity. What do we know and love that has acidity? Well, you can't put ume and jamaica in a wine, can you? No, we could probably do that. Cool, go with it. I mean, that's that's our formula, basically. It's very, very hands-on. It's a massive intervention, but it's still natural, mm -hmm. still wholesome, and it's delicious. I mean, that's the most important part. All right, so uh, yeah, so Free Your Mind Light is what we call our piquette, and it's not like other piquettes. It has other stuff in it. It's got ume, which is a Japanese plum. It's actually an apricot. And then it has jamaica, which is hibiscus tea. So we're not sure how carbonated this is. Let's give it a go and get a little closer. One shot of vodka. <laughs> um. So we were really scared about this wine uh, because it's not a wine. Uh, it's not made um, from whole grapes. It's made from grape pumice. So after you press a wine, you have the grape seeds, stems, and skins left over, right? They're mostly dehydrated, but there is a little sugar in them in the case of white grapes or a little alcohol in them in the case of orange or red grapes. And I'm talking about orange and red wine or white wine. Um, so you rehydrate it, meaning, yes, you add a whole bunch of water, which is uh, pretty risque in, in winemaking. Um that is diluting the acidity. Acidity is like the most important thing in terms of making a beverage stable on the shelf, both in terms of the flavor and the microbial situation. Is it like fermenting septically? That's not good for you. Um, so first order of business is we got to address that acidity. So we use hibiscus, hamica. Uh, number two is let's address that acidity again. And let's also add a little bit of sugar. So we use ume. Uh, we preserve the ume when it comes in because it comes in in March and then sit on that all year long and then add it to the fermentation. So we sold this right away because I thought that was a pretty good game plan, all of those things together. Okay, our chemistry is pretty pretty good to be stable, but let's sell it real fast because I'm not certain and I don't know how long this is going to hold. Turns out, like everything that you doubt, oh, it's actually fine and it's better now and anybody that still has a bottle, Cheers. Enjoy it now. It's like 10 times as good as it was upon release. Yeah. But I guess that's sparkling wine for you or sparkling not wine in this case. Yeah. Yeah. This is so, so nice. I mean, this is a lot more mature, yeah. more complex than it was. I think the Jamaica 
comes out more. And mm -hmm. I actually taste the ume for the first time. Whereas immediately upon release, the Hamaiko is more of an acid experience, less of a flavor one. And the ume was just sort of this like background sort of pseudo tropical tone. Uh, whereas now it's very much, I think, redolent of that tart little apricot we call ume. Yeah. Uh, this is a good time to say that one of the the excellent, um, I would I would I would say it's an advantage that we have over others, is that Andy has the best palate in the world, and well, also so not true, <laughs> but also an insanely good memory at remembering tastes and sensations and flavors well beyond anything I'm personally capable of doing. He'll often be like, remember when we had that wine three years ago on this day and it tasted like this? I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't remember what I drank last night, to be honest. Um, but he can, because of this ability to recall the and have memories associated with certain flavors, it makes it so much easier for us to um, play around with things, come up with new ideas, uh, remember certain things and, and how they might relate to what we're doing now. It's really makes the whole process uh, really enjoyable and makes, um, you know, playing around and manipulating things um, that much more sort of uh, easier, I, I guess, or, or something like that. It's just, I've just never seen anybody really do that before. So, um, thanks, buddy. I really cherish this one memory from, from enology uh, school from Fresno State where uh, we were. Uh, the, the task was to count the taste buds on your tongue and you had one of those little uh, paper hole punch reinforcer sticker rings and you were to put that on your tongue and use food coloring, go to the bathroom, look in the mirror and dye that that uh, inner circle of your tongue blue. And then the taste buds will take up a little bit more pigment. I think they're a little darker and you can actually count them. And then you can extrapolate how many taste buds on your tongue and you can actually categorize yourself. You can quantify this and you can categorize yourself as a super taster. And of course, everybody was wondering who's going to be the super taster, but it's a self-administered test. So who's going to lie about it in the bathroom <laughs> with the blue paint on your tongue like a loser, right? Uh, turns out a lot of people had a lot of pride and they thought they were super tasters. And it was the greatest thing because next slide in the lecture was super tasters make terrible winemakers. <laughs> You'll never enjoy wine. Uh, anything above six eight percent alcohol is going to taste like fire to you because you have so many taste buds that that alcohol alcohol is perceived that flavor of alcohol in your mouth is perceived as an irritant so is capsaicin so is spice those are not flavors they're irritants so for a super taster it's incredibly irritating and you should probably leave the program and never make wine again yeah <laughs> it was so great because all these people stood up and they're like i am a super taster i'm gonna be better than all of you and they just got got it handed to him. So I'm not one. I'm not a super taster. I'm not even a, a fantastic wine taster, but I am, I think, uh, a sort of working man's uh, uh, wine palate. And then the memory thing, I wish my memory was this good for normal aspects of life. But yes, I can remember every darn thing I've ever consumed. Uh, you know, I'm not going to remember the date. I might remember the year. And literally the other day I picked one out. My family was asking me, Andrew, what was that that wine where you said your brother-in-law had really good taste? And I was like, uh, did we serve it in Georgia or Maryland? They're like, uh, Maryland. And I was like, oh, well, that's the Zodovich Family Vineyard Chardonnay from Devlet Winery. Uh, and I didn't say the vintage because that would just be lame, but I'm pretty certain that I could. Uh, so I, I can do the cool wine trick in a different fashion. Yeah, I don't, I don't do that, so. 
I just know it tastes good. <laughs> well, we need we need that approval. Yeah, too. I'm, the, I'm the, part of the process. I'm the, the the every person side of it. You know, when we make something, if I taste it and I go, this tastes good, other people are going to think it tastes good. You know, it's important. It's so important to have those informal sensory panels. Um, formal ones really suck, but those are sort of important too. Um, but the informal ones, like we have this whole rolodex of people that we taste wine on for different reasons you know we think like they're a very um centered palette for a certain demographic or they're you know <clears throat> perfect intermediate wine enthusiast palette and that is so important because we can get really um stuck in our own heads you can get seller palette and if you're just pouring wine for other winemakers and wine industry people that's not necessarily the most uh you know relevant feedback yeah, I would love to see a room full of psalms taste through our wines just for the jokes, you know. Dude, and I'd love to have the room of the average Joe wine drinkers on the other side. <laughs> yeah. can, like open the doors and be like, go at it. You enroll in a viticulture enology program in school and you just assume that you're going to be a winemaker in Napa one day. I mean, that's sort of the default and it's a very uh, traditional path and they're sort of stuffy up there. And it's a certain style of wine. Has anybody ever heard of Cabernet before? Uh, yep, it's Napa. And, um, you know, there there are small producers up there doing weird stuff. There are natural wine producers up there, a lot more in Sonoma too. Um, so Napa and Sonoma is sort of one culture. There is, I think, um, in my opinion, a sort of cultural divide between NorCal and SoCal winemaking um, <clears throat> with, with like bits of similarity Mendo and Humboldt, those are obviously more unbridled. Um, but when I think of those regions, I don't I don't know them very well myself. That's a frontier that we're super interested in exploring in the next few years, along with the Sierra foothills. Um, I know about those regions more in terms of small producers driving there, getting fruit, and then driving it back. And that's how we do it. Um, you know, we drive long distances. I mean, we're pulling fruit in Monterey County, in uh, the South Bay. We're pulling fruit in Lodi increasingly more. Um, and then uh, Paso Robles, Templeton. So we're really all over the place. And, uh, you know, that's a different culture too. We don't exist in an estate, winery, regional culture. It's very rare we are. Um, everybody is sourcing fruit. Perhaps you're farming it, but you're driving to different sites. You don't have a vineyard at the winery. Um, and, and we're currently producing out of Gilroy. We have been producing out of Watsonville. So the MO there is um, <clears throat> a lot of people are participating in farming or farming the whole thing themselves. They're doing tiny little backyard sites throughout the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, in Paso, it's more large vineyard management companies. Obviously, there are other things going on. But in our our relationship to Paso, it's more large vineyard management companies that we're dealing with. You know, you when we do tastings or you talk to the average person, you say, oh, you know, you make wine, they automatically assume you own a vineyard and you own your own facility. But there's a huge amount of winemakers in California who are doing custom crush or what's called AP, alternating proprietorship. Um, they neither own the facility nor the land. They're just passionate about making wine and they travel across the state like we do to all these great locations to find the types of grapes they want to work with. Um, and that's probably, if you were to go to Tilda or Silver Lake Wine and drink California wine, the vast majority of the bottles you'll be picking up are, are made this way. 
Yeah, it's a good point. We really should consider ourselves sort of an alternating proprietor member. Right. That, that's very much a, a subculture of, of California winemakers. And, um, but being in LA, I don't know if we'd be like, if we were in Slow or Paso or something like this, Santa Barbara County, I don't, we probably wouldn't be making the same wines we're making today. Oh, totally so not. much, so much of the, the influence comes from being in LA and, uh, just the, you know, the amazing food scene, all of our friends who run pop-ups or run restaurants or, or doing something new, doing something creative, um, they, we draw so much inspiration from that because if we weren't exposed to that and we had, you know, a tiny amount of ideas around us, our universe would be tiny, but our universe is so big that we, we can pull all these ideas and, and stuff from, from all over the place. So the Ume and, and Fear Mind Light, uh, the piquette came from Tsubaki. Courtney at Tsubaki uh, hooks us up with it. And uh, that's how we were able to secure it. This insane amount of Japanese plums. And the hibiscus comes from Masienda out on Pico Boulevard, who do heirloom varietals, mostly of corn and masa. But we were able to pull from that too. And a lot of the other ideas we have for the upcoming vintage are all drawn from people we hang out with and, and uh, places we go, places we eat, places we drink. You know, just like that story of the, that first tasting at Silver Lake Wine, had we not really done that. You know, who knows if we've been exposed to all these possibilities. Yeah, totally. I mean, in the case of using Jamaica and, and Piquette, we weren't even buying Jamaica from Masienda. We were buying masa to make tortillas. And the tortillas are so good, and we've learned so much by doing that. It's really, it, it's sort of akin to like pasta making. It's a simple process, but it's hard, but it's not hard. But then it's very difficult to become an expert. It's rather easy to become a beginner, intermediate. And we just love Masienda and kept browsing the website looking for more masa. And eventually, oh, whoa, look, they have heirloom Oaxacan Jamaica. Uh, yeah, that sounds better than I heard there might be some dye or something in like Jamaica if you buy it at the wrong place or whatever. Yeah, let's look into that. And lo and behold, it's like, oh, this is a completely different plant. I mean, this is incredible. Like I was, I was eating them straight out of the bag and. Uh, actually up in the winery in Watsonville, eating them straight out of the bag. I was like, wow, it's like, you guys got to try this. It's like crispy. It's kind of like a chip. I'm chewing on it. And then I'm like, oh, it's brutally sour. You can't keep this in your mouth. Like it's dissolving acid into your saliva directly. It's it's strong. It's strong. And it was, uh, it it's again, such a different product than, um, than commodity hibiscus. And we owe that to our LA experience. We wouldn't have come across that particular sourcing of that particular product had it not been for Masienda, had it not been for us being in LA, period. And that's a very common theme across all of our wines, not always in such a uh, um, concrete like element of that wine. It's not like, you know, oh, these, this LA experience represents 33% of this wine, like that one does. Uh, <laughs> but every wine has some LA story, some LA personality, some LA element to it. We spend time in a lot of other places, but there's an energy in LA of really sort of people who are self-starters uh, that either got burned by institutional, uh, uh, you know, institutional whatever, like the the the, the higher ups, the structures, whatever, and set out on their own, or there's just like a, a very creative energy in which collaboration comes very naturally some perhaps less competitive 
at least in our experience. Yeah. Agreed, Every, everybody we've come in contact with has wanted to collaborate. Nobody's looked at us as competition, really, um, uh, from Carla at Chainsaw all the way to Kristen at, at Nomadica. Like these people live five minutes from us and we all sort of play in the same space. And uh, they're at once a source of inspiration and also just great friends and just people who want to do cool things. And um, a lot of times that cool thing exists outside of institution, Um, you know, uh, to try something new, to go for it. Obviously, I feel like that's just maybe California in general or LA in general, like the, I'm going to go out there and make it, you know, this sort of westward emotion. That showbiz, baby. Exactly. That's our favorite phrase. That's, That's a real thing though, you know, like that. The East Coast is where we're from is very mired in tradition and very mired in history. And the West has always been, you know, this go westward and make make something of yourself sort of idea. Obviously, we didn't, we didn't really begin with that in mind, but um, versus the hustle and bustle you might find in New York and the sort of or even the Bay Area, the the competition, the the levels, the hierarchy that exists, it's not so big here because. Um, you know, we've been to like Innaka, and that's great. Two, three Michelin star restaurant, amazing. But you go to Boyle Heights and you go to like the El Pastor stand or whatever, and that thing is bomb too. And completely different worlds, but um, drawing from the same energy, which is you're going to enjoy it, you're going to like it. It's uh, the taste and flavors are there. Um, so I think for us, that's exactly where we exist, you know. For sure. Backing up a little bit. LA is really inclusive and that's what we aim to be too. And that backs up to our origin story at Despacio, the discotheque sound system. That's a very inclusive space. It's very high end. It's very disco. It's obvious if you're not reading a newspaper article about it, if you're not talking to somebody about it, you know, they might actually articulate it. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, wow, this is what Studio 54 probably was like. Except Studio 54 is very exclusive. The door policy was ridiculous. Right. And that is not disco as we understand it. And Despacio. The inclusive character of Despacio is the stark opposite of it. And that's what we look for in everything that we do. And I think that's why we really find a home in LA is it's not that all of Los Angeles is, you know, open arms welcoming, but, you know, the friends that we found are and the establishments that we frequent are. And that's just, you know, natural attraction. That's why we're here. Yeah. Despacio was 100% high quality. No hierarchy, you know, and that's what we always feel like. We, we we don't turn, close the door on anybody. We don't look down on anybody. We don't say this is for you and not for you. We're not exclusionary in, in production. Um, we're not exclusionary in, in who, should, who should consume what we're going after, you know, like um, uh, that, that was always for us the main point. No hierarchy, no... No elevation to God status, none of this rever you know you know this sort of stuff. It was always about the product, the music um and delivering it in a playful and well executed manner it's a it's a cannon that fires in all directions. that's what's coming next we're We're starting a lot of new stuff. It really feels like a garden, like we're planting all these seeds. Some of these plants are gonna grow slow, some of them are gonna be fast. We're toying with extremely low alcohol wines. I think for us, uh, what's next is trying to 
get a little bit more cohesion going uh, and what we put out this this vintage we made something like eight wines um, and we see what happens when you make too many wines we think so now how do we uh, really make that house of fermentation how do we create the house uh, we've sort of laid the foundation but now it's time to um, build the walls and put the windows in the door and uh, hang the disco ball yeah and figure I would, out i would hang the ball first and build the house so yeah <laughs> build the house around <laughs> I don't it i know if that's possible but can we but that we will yeah we're always looking for a way to uh you know we we love disco and we've done we do funk um we're always looking for a way to inject techno in the in the wine somehow and probably even you know figure out how to do some country music too in there well country music is practically written in wine yeah so these are all ideas and concepts that, that come to mind rave wine this kind of stuff you know i don't come from the wine world and and andy has a aversion to lots of aspects of it so at some point when we were just like screw it let's just do what we do and find the people uh, who vibe with it or who dig it and um, or who are picking up what we're putting down and then everything will flow from that. Um, and so our biggest champions to date have not been wine lists on nice restaurants. It has not been the old guard establishment. It has been the shops that have opened up in the last three years because they all sort of, uh, you know, approach it from the similar way. Michael at Hilo, the whole crew at Tilda and Echo Park. Um, even yeah, Hilo and Tilda are our foundation. I mean, we we would not be here without those two accounts. Yeah, they took a a shot on us. It just cracked open the door, and I think um, they created a war. They helped push that along. You know, it's sort of getting rid of the tastemakers, getting rid of this psalm world. I think sometimes those psalms documentaries help people. To be like, ugh, what is this? I don't want to participate goes, in that. You it, know? <laughs> it goes both ways. You know, the wine world has changed so much around us since we started. And before we started, when I was in wine school, just starting to think about being a, a wine professional. You know, it when I was a kid, it was the Robert Parker Points era, high extraction wines. Um and then once I started working in a wine cellar, there was the in pursuit of balance, which is so such a name for a philosophy of trying to pick the grapes as early as possible and making the leanest wine. It's obviously an oxymoron. Um, and then we started actually transitioning out of that. I thought that was, you know, this is the new world order, low alcohol wines, high acid wines, you know, very, very high end Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. This yeah. is what it's going to be. It's just changing into this. So it's going to be like this forever. No wrong. You know, we start a wine company, all of a sudden that's fading. That's not cool. What's cool now? Natural wine. Right. Yeah. We weren't, we didn't just set out being like, oh, we're going to make natural wine. The year, the year before we started, I went up to uh, work with my buddy Ryan Sturm during harvest and he was making natural wine. I'd never seen white wine fermenting without uh, yeast inoculation before in my life. And I was like, Ryan, dude, I'm here for you, bud. I'm here for you. As long as you need me, are you doing okay? I thought he was losing his mind. He was losing some of his ferments. That's for sure. <laughs> that's the way the natural wine cookie crumbles you know it, it's it's strange so this is um the norm now at least where we are is natural wine and even that set we're not necessarily until recently 
you know, it's that's hard to crack into as well. We mm-hmm. felt like outsiders for so, so long. And I think that our approach now is, you know, we don't want to be a part of any pack. We always want to be doing our own thing. We get very bored as soon as somebody else starts doing the same thing as us. So I think our strategy is to be out in front of the pack. Now, when you first get started and you're out in front of the pack, it can feel like you're behind them, like they've actually lapped you. But once you, you know, get your foundation, get some inertia, your confidence comes and then you realize you're actually out ahead of everybody else doing different stuff. Even with natural wine, you know, you go back maybe a decade, there was a handful of people doing it. You go back six to eight years, that's how you start getting the, the dirty and rowdies and the... Yeah, speaking um, domestically, obviously, yeah, there's domestically, a much longer history yeah. abroad. Right, but, you know, in, within the California scene, and those have become established names. And then now, I would say, even today, there's a huge proliferation of uh, new labels coming online. And so it's kind of thinking, all right, what's the next one? What's coming next? Like, who's who's really going to shake things up? And part of that was goes hand in hand with natural wine is um obviously much younger people younger people moving into cities younger people changing tastes um uh, the inex- inaccessibility of so much wine either from a price point or from like a nobody you know nobody likes Santa Rita Hills Pinot I'm sorry you know this this kind of stuff buttery shard this this sort of things like you look at how waves come and go like that, and that's, you know, natural wine sort of rode that. And in so doing, was able to break a lot of rules, you know. Labels could get weird and crazy, and brand, you know, brands and graphic design and style could be uh, really different than what was in the past, all the sort of estate vineyards and very hoity-toity looking stuff. So. You know how you know is when the old houses from Sonoma and stuff start a sub-label, a, sub, a sub-label of natural wine. <laughs> You know who you are. You start a sub-label of natural wine because you know that your you know, $350 a year wine club members are yeah. dropping like flies or something like this. And, you know, you're, you're losing traction in, in grocery stores and Whole Foods and stuff like this. And they got to do something new. That's how you know. Yeah. Remember when we were looking at craft beer, like when will wine, could wine be like craft beer? Could you make a label like that and put it on a wine bottle? Now you go to a wine store, it's like, all right, you really have to focus to tell if you're in the wine or beer section. It's also similar. It's yeah, all very out there. I think a good thing with craft beer is you saw how far that dove off the cliff, too. Oh, yeah. What crap label wine. were we looking at today? It was oh straight God. out of an animated horror movie. Crap, <laughs> we're like, guys, beer too real, too real. It's like, gotten trippy. S- yes. Scary. So very confusing. Much. It's proliferated so much. Every week, they're pumping out new beers, this, that, and the other, and you're like, oh, you can't keep track anymore. You yeah. Know? Why uh, do you think, why gosh, do you think- keeping track of all of that? I don't know if we have that many ideas. What if we were brewers? We yeah, might run out. Oh my god, I feel sorry for brewers today, man. Like, why do you think people are reaching for lagers and pilsners again? Because they're just like, oh, I don't know if I want to eat like or drink like a. Well, even that can be a full frontal assault. Guava, micro, table. sour, creek, Belgian, two yeast, double hop thing you're like what is that you know oh that sounds great <laughs> you got any <laughs> get confused from the art perspective shout out anton godard and lana shamaradian our two designers who make the wonder work visual world come to life they make uh, the wonder work work yeah and uh we wouldn't be anywhere without them that's 100 percent um, but as for making things that taste good, I mean, it's not that we wanted to make 
a disco wine with like, you know, Saturday Night Fever, disco ball stuff. It was the sensation of being in the space, the music, what you get from that. Same way we approached country music. We do want to make a wine called Willie Nelson's Harmonica Player 1973 of the Present. We haven't figured out what it's going to be yet. But it's a sensation. It's an idea. It's a feeling, you know, like... Um, we'll know it as soon as we taste it. Yeah. So, but it, it's less about being, you know, this is a funk wine. This is a disco wine. It's about, yeah. okay, what is the what is the vibe here? What, is, what How does it make us feel? So how do we want you to feel, you know? Yeah. yeah. Again, without it being on the nose, we're not trying to like, you know, make wine and, you know, a time signature or something awfully obtuse like that. <laughs> I mean, that I think that's the phrase that... Uh, that garners the most shame whenever, you know, we're in the creative process and one of us or our collaborators goes, yeah, but that's a little on the nose. It's like, oh yeah, you're right. Let's get rid of yeah, that. Why did I ever think that? It's on the nose. Isamu, that's on the nose. I shouldn't have said you it. You can't make it too obvious because then it's not up for interpretation. <laughs> the more you leave it up for interpretation, the more they can figure it out. You don't have to prescribe anything. Um, but, you know. I'll just go on the record and say we're the pet shop boys of wine. <laughs> no, that's extremely on the nose, but that works. <laughs> I don't I don't see I see natural wine just starting to reach some regions and it, it fleshes out in different ways in different areas and that's awesome. I mean, we see even just in really simple minded terms, we see different wines in our portfolio really resonating in certain regions more so than others even within the same city obviously east la west la big difference between uh, you know what what works on each side but we see natural wine sort of just becoming more of a standard less of a trend less of a category and more of just like uh yeah well obviously it's natural wine uh yes well i mean yeah of course what else would we be serving yeah and, and i hear that sort of conversation starting to happen outside of the traditional meccas of natural wine being LA, San Francisco, New York. You know, making back to the East Coast was always a dream of ours, just so our parents can walk into the store and see our wine, you know? Then it becomes really real. Because they've been asking since, you know, the first day that we decided to start a wine company. Yeah. It's been a long, long time coming. <laughs> but, I oh mean, we, we like going to places where people feel underserved or ignored you know we get the big cities obviously we live in la but you know we're coming for tulsa we're coming for nashville somebody wants to sell us in arkansas so texarkana you know we'll come out there we'll throw up a disco ball we'll pour wine we'll yeah. talk to people we really do have like a mobile disco ball set we can hang a disco ball from anything we're practically engineers at this point we have an engineering degree from the disco university like this is dance floor ready wine yeah. this is this is meant for this atmosphere because it was born out of this atmosphere so um we didn't hit the trade so show circuit we didn't hit the wine oh, fairs we hit the warehouse parties because that made the most sense to us you know absolutely we love you know sharing the gospel i mean it's it's totally about sharing and enjoying things together it's not at all about like look at what we're doing you know it's totally about hey try this isn't this weird i mean i think that's why we do it Yes, this is why I'm in, you know, a fermentation industry. It's because literally the name of the game is, I don't know, should we do that? Yeah, why not? Well, that's weird. Taste yeah, this. The best. I mean, that is our job. It's amazing. The best sensation is when 
someone tastes it, thinking it's gonna be bad, and then they go like, "Oh wow, this is cool." Oh, I didn't realize it was gonna be like this. And you go, yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah. And then that said, I have an amazing photograph. I wish I could share it in in uh, auditory terms of my dad taking his first sip of natural wine, and the look on his face is like. My son has chosen a very weird path. <laughs> I don't know. That's what it says to me. To other people, it might say, ew, this is disgusting. But, um, you know, to each their own. We like experimentation, but we, everything for us has to be on some level sessionable. Like you got to be able to just enjoy it with people, enjoy it with a meal, enjoy it. It's not meant to be esoteric. It's not meant to be challenging. Um, it's not meant to, you know, this sort of stuff. It's always meant to, can you hang out with your buds and share a bottle of wine? If that's if that's what you're trying to do, we make wine for you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, we still drink the European classics and stuff, but it's like, we're not going to make those wines. You know, why yeah, try? It's not, it's not in the cards. So right. chart our own path, come up with our own thing. We just got, we just had a, a, a woman today on, on Instagram Drove from Boston to New York just to buy our wines. And when we Shucks. saw that, we were just like, wow. That's super that's cool. That's dope, man. Like, that's cool. Um, you know, we chatted a little bit. We we're just like, thank you so much, blah, blah, blah. But, like, if you can do that, if, if people can be that inspired, you know, sure. That's, that's what we're out here trying to do, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's really special. I mean, that that's totally why we do it. The yeah. other the other day we calculated. I think we tried to calculate. It was something like we probably made on the order of like eleven thousand bottles of wine or something like this. And if even if you did seventy percent of it was one time, thirty percent repeat. That's like you know we're talking about like seven thousand, eight thousand people have consumed what we put out there and and, and not complained. <laughs> As far as we know. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we've received a complaint other yeah. than the this writing tastes like ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Which some take as a compliment. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it's really awesome. Um, you know, when it was amazing just to make our first wine and to share that. And it was, you know, like, here, try this. And now it's really a, a more complex, more thorough experience when we have so many wines singing together. It's like you really get to taste more of our story rather than just this one juice that we made. And uh, I, I think that's resonating with people. They're, they're feeling a part of the world of wonder work. Just one more time for the record. We are the Pet Shop Boys of wine. Yeah. The Pet Shop Boys of I, wine. I try to slip that into every, conver every conversation see if anybody like registers. Yeah, see if it tracks with anybody. <laughs> In the hopes that it makes it back to them somehow. Yeah. You know when you get the sideways head tilt, like, did he just say they're the special boys of wine? Okay, go on, well, weirdo. It's cooler than saying you're the daft punk of wine. It's true, it's true. You can't pull That's that a off. Cheese. You can't pull that off. Yeah. Thank you for listening, everyone. For links and resources about everything discussed today, please visit the show notes in the episode. If you want to support the podcast, the most effective way to do so would be to hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform that you're listening in from. Sharing the show with your friends on social media is always appreciated. Shout out to Sean Myers for creating the original music, and to Jason Cryer for creating the graphics, Corey Pereira with help on the mix.
The show is produced by me, Jordan Harrow, with help from Home Court Pictures. You can always reach out to me at Jordan, H-A-R-0, on Instagram and Twitter. Follow the show at PrefixPod on Instagram. Or email us at prefixpodcast at gmail.com. I appreciate every second of your attention and support, and don't take it for granted. See you on the next one.